Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's great to see you this morning, especially all of you here in person. If you're joining us online, welcome to you as well. We're starting a new series today uh, through the book of Galatians. Uh, And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 1. Here at Mercy Hill, please feel free to use a print version. If you're not sure what Galatians is, there's a table of contents in the front. Uh, You just flip to the table of contents and find it. Of course, you can use it on your device. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you want one, there's some in the back of the room. Uh, and you can get up right now and go grab one, uh, and we'd love for you to keep it uh, if, uh, if you need a Bible at your house. All right? So the key question that we're going to see in the book of Galatians, the one that kind of continues to push the letter forward, is this question. How much can you modify something before it becomes something else? Now, I'm not much of a car guy. I know some of you are car guys. Maybe you're car girls. Uh, and I know there's this whole thing, whole scene, uh, where people modify their cars. Uh, this past week, while I was getting ready for this message, I, I stumbled upon an extreme group of car modifiers uh, from Japan. Uh, they're called the Bosazuko. Uh, and, uh, and they modify cars in some pretty wild ways. And so I wanted to show you a picture. This is a um, Nissan Skyline. Uh, was formerly made by Datsun. You guys see a picture of that with the white one? Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Anybody remember this car? So, uh, yeah, this is, yeah. So this is how the Bosazuko modified uh, Nissan Skyline. Yeah, that's pretty extreme, right? Like if you saw that driving down the street, your mind will not go, oh, I remember that car, the Nissan Skyline, right? This seems like it's something completely different, right? Uh, and then this one is the uh, Mazda RX-7. That's the red one. Yep. Anybody, you, you guys seen an RX-7 before, right? Yep. The coolest kid in your high school had an RX-7, right? Yeah, that's right. And so this is how uh, one of these guys modified an RX-7. I'm not sure what's going on in the back end back there. Uh, it's pretty extreme modification, uh, and again, if you saw this, who would go, oh, I've, I remember that one from high school, RX-7. No, you go, that, that's crazy, right? That's wild. Uh, all right, here's the last one, and you're going to have to guess what the original car was. Check this one out. Any ideas? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a minivan, right? A minivan. Can you imagine carpool line after your elementary school? This rolls in. There's a whole line, right, of like... Uh, Siennas and, and Odysseys, you know, to pick up their kids after school, and then this one just pulls in the car line, right? Nobody would say, oh, that's just a normal minivan, right? That makes sense here. Everybody would be like, what is going on? So there's that question, how much can you modify something before it comes something completely different? Or perhaps another way we could say it is this, when does the modification just become a caricature of the real thing? How much can you change it before you start having to explain this is what the original version was? This is really the question being asked in the book of Galatians. How much can you change, modify, supplement the gospel until it results in something completely different? 
How much can you tinker with the central message of the Bible until you get something that is no longer the central message of the Bible? Now, a little background, Paul, the author of the book of Galatians, he's writing to a group of churches in this area called Galatia. It's kind of like a network of connected churches. There's a little bit of debate about where exactly these churches are. Uh, some people think it's in a northern region, and some people think it's in a southern region, and because there were two regions that were known by the name Galatia. You go, hey, that's kind of weird. It's really not that weird. Anybody ever been to Forsyth, Georgia? It's in Monroe County. You ever been to Forsyth County? Right? That's where coming Georgia is. So from here, to get to Forsyth, Georgia, you would have to go south down 75. To get to Forsyth County, you would have to go north up 400, two totally different regions. But if you're hanging out with somebody who's from Cumming, what do they say? Well, I'm from Forsyth. If you're hanging out with somebody who's from Monroe County, what do they say? I'm from Forsyth. So it's not really that confusing. More than likely, this is the southern region. And the reason I think that to be true is because that's where we know for sure Paul planted some churches. And so in Acts chapter 13 and 14, uh, he plants some churches, a place called Antioch in Poseidon, uh, which there he preaches the gospel and people came to faith and they started a church. Uh, and then he went on from there to Iconium and Lystra and Derby, all within this region of Galatians. And not only in those regions uh, did Paul uh, share the gospel with his team around him and people came to faith. They started churches in all those cities. He also got stoned. Uh, so it's pretty par for the course for Paul's missionary journeys. Churches started and he was physically assaulted. So why is he writing to these churches He's writing to address three problems. The first one is theological. And what I mean by theological is something about the teaching happening in those churches, teaching about who God is and what we believe as followers of Jesus. And so what has happened in Galatia and this network of churches are there's these false teachers who begun to heavily influence the church with a modified version of the gospel. They're teaching that people in Galatia who don't come from a Jewish background have to first become Jewish and then they can accept the gospel. And the way they're teaching them to do that is through this thing called circumcision. So we see this teaching summarized in Acts 15 verse 1. It says this, but some men came down from Judah and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. You can't be a part of God's family. You don't belong to the church. You can't be forgiven of your sins. You can't be extended the very grace of God through Jesus. Now, this practice of circumcision for the Jews uh, is not exactly how we would practice it. Right now, it's uh, just a custom. Uh, it is based around health. Uh, but for them, circumcision was about identity. It was a sign that you belong to God's people, the Jewish people, it was a rite or a ritual to show that you belonged and following in the example set in Genesis by Abraham. So Abraham was circumcised. So this practice of circumcision continued to show, hey, I am Jewish. And so with this problem that Paul is addressing, he's going to teach us how these teachers, these false teachers are adding to supplementing the gospel with something that 
shouldn't be there. Now, this leads really to the second problem he's going to address. We're going to see this in a few weeks, which is a cultural problem. So, of course, as these people have taught the churches to embrace this Jewish identity, what are they asking them to reject? Their own culture, their own background, where they are coming from. And so they're teaching that the church is supposed to be this monolithic culture where everybody is exactly the same. What Paul's going to argue throughout the book is that's not God's plan at all. In fact, God's plan is for his people to be a multi-ethnic family of faith, not where everyone looks the same. Then the third thing, the third problem that Paul's addressing is personal. You can imagine as these teachers have begun to teach this uh, addition to the gospel message, some people in churches be like, hey, wait. No, when Paul was here, and probably it's only been about a year, when Paul was here last year, that's not what he taught us. And so what these false teachers have done is they've cast doubts on Paul's credentials. They said he's not a real apostle. He's not in the same category as Peter or James and John, the famous apostles in Jerusalem. They're saying that Paul's like the public's cola. Sure, it's dark and carbonated, but it's not the same thing as a Coke, right? That he's a knockoff version, that he's the great value apostle. And so for these three reasons, Paul is writing this letter. So that's where we're going to start, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Before we look at the scripture, let's, let's pray together. Uh, Father, in this moment, uh, could you speak clearly to us through your word? Could you, by your spirit, show us the truth? Amen. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me to the churches in Galatia. So Paul identifies himself as an apostle. He says he's not been appointed by men, but he's been appointed by God uh, and the Father and Jesus the Son. Now, what is this word apostle? I've used it several times already. The New Testament uses this word in two different ways. The first way is this, apostle just means sent one. And so an apostle could be anyone that was sent by a church out on mission, like a missionary would be an apostle. But there's a second way that we use this term apostle, which is an official role. And that's what Paul is claiming, that he belongs to these apostles. He has an official place. And the apostles are specifically people who were sent out by the resurrected Jesus. So they weren't sent out just by a church who thought these would be good missionaries. The apostles are men that saw Jesus resurrected and were sent by Jesus himself. So this happens for Paul in Acts chapter 9. These apostles are the founders of the church. They lay down the teaching which they received from Jesus and passed it down from generations to generations to generations so that we have what the apostles taught. So right from the get-go, Paul's dealing with one of the problems, saying, I'm not a second-hand apostle sent to you by some other apostles. I'm an apostle sent by Jesus himself. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, so far, we're in line with a pattern that Paul uses in almost all of his letters. So he introduces himself, identifies the church or churches he's writing to, and then he often offers a prayer, which is what he does here. In this prayer, he prays, grace to you. Now, that word grace means unmerited or unearned favor from God. Grace is God's goodwill towards us. It's his loving kindness. And he offers it to them. Hey, God's goodwill or God's kindness, God's love to you. And then he says, and peace. An idea here is a right relationship with God. Saying you could be at peace with God. So grace, God's love, and peace, being in a right relationship with God. And then he adds this to the prayer, which is a very simple statement of the gospel. What's at dispute in Galatia? The gospel. So right out of the gate, Paul's going to go, hey, this is the way you get grace and peace. Here's where it comes from. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, that Jesus died on the cross, gave his life willingly, freely, sacrificially. Why? Next phrase, for our sins. Now, sin, the Bible talks about sin in a lot of different ways. One of the ways it talks about is rebellion against God. So he's saying the reason you don't have peace from God, the reason you're not right in your relationship with God is not because God left us, but we left God. That all of us have rebelled or turned our back to God. The sin comes with a penalty, the penalty of death, that we are separated from God now and into eternity unless something changes. What's the change? Jesus gave himself for our sins. That Jesus intervened. And then he uses this next phrase, to deliver. Christianity at its heart, what we believe is in a rescue. That we were stuck in our sins that we could not change our predicament, but that Jesus rescued us with his death and his resurrection. It's rescue from what? Sin, but he also has this other phrase in there, from this present age. Now, the Bible actually uses phrase like this uh, pretty frequently. It's usually a comparison. This age versus the age to come. And this is the age that has been corrupted by this thing called sin. The sin not only affects our personal relationship with God, but it affects everything about this world around us. It is a corrupting force. But there is an age to come that's going to be free from the influence of sin. It's the best example I could think of. I know it's not going to hit all of you. Uh, but Stranger Things season four. I don't know if you've been keeping up with Stranger Things or watching it on Netflix, but in Stranger Things, it's a TV show on Netflix about some kids, a lot of 80s kind of nostalgia happening, who discover that there is a mirror world beneath their world. And that mirror world, they call the upside down, contains evil. And in various ways, through all the seasons, this evil upside-down reflection of their world creeps into their town called Hawkins. It's an alternate reality. 
What we find at the end of season things Stranger 4 is that this evil world has broken through into Hawkins, into their hometown. And it is corrupting and destroying everything that it touches. Death and decay follows it everywhere. This is similar to what Paul is describing. That although it's not an upside down with monsters and all sorts of crazy things happening, wizards and whatever else, that this thing called sin has broken into our world and corrupted it. And that death and decay is chasing after it wherever we go. And we have to be rescued from it. We need to be saved. And that's what Jesus did. He has saved us from the penalty of sin in this life and then will save us from the presence of sin in the age to come. So Paul just starts with the gospel, the good news. I mean, Jesus saved you. Jesus rescued you. Now, typically, in one of Paul's letters after his prayer, he does some thanksgivings. Where he's like, hey, I heard about what you're doing. It's really good work. I'm so proud of you. I'm thankful for you. You're a great church. Keep up the good work. Uh, he didn't do any of that. Verse six, he just jumps in. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some, it's these false teachers who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse eight, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching, proclaiming, teaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, Paul says, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here's what he says, I'm astonished. I'm flabbergasted. I'm beside myself. Why? Because to this church, he says, because you are quickly deserting him. Do you notice that phrase? Jesus. The Greek word there actually carries this idea of trading allegiances. It would be as if someone left the University of Georgia football team in the transfer portal and transferred to Florida. Every time David Pollock on game day chooses Florida over Georgia, it hurts my heart. I'm like, you're at Georgia, great. What are you doing? Trading allegiances. Just pick Georgia every time. Make me happy. It would be like if someone walked into Hillgrove High School down the road wearing a Harrison t-shirt. It's a trading of allegiances. And Paul's saying, you're deserting, you're leaving Jesus. But check this out. How are they deserting or leaving Jesus? The next phrase, by turning to a different gospel. He's saying, what you believe saves you, how you get to Jesus is so important that if you're not believing that rightly, you're not just leaving good theology, you're leaving who? Jesus himself. 
You're separating from Jesus himself. Modifying the gospel doesn't just change what you believe. It's leading away from the one whom you believe in. Now, we've used this term, the gospel, a lot already. The gospel just means good news or a happy announcement. It's a message intended to be good for those who receive it. The good news is the news contained in the prayer. You don't have to rescue yourself by your good deeds. Jesus rescues you through what he did on the cross. That's the good news. Salvation, rescue is available to everybody who trusts in Jesus regardless. Regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of the type of person you are, regardless of your goodness or your badness, it's Jesus who saves. That's great news. It's great news for us. Very good news. That no matter what you and I have done, no matter where we come from, Jesus rescues So Paul's saying to these churches, you're looking for the good news of Jesus, but you're looking in the wrong source. This message has been modified too much. You can't tell the original. And then verse seven, not that there is another one. Another what? Not that there's another gospel. There's no other good news. But uh, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus. Saying this teaching, It's teaching that you have to obey the customs of Moses. This teaching that you have to become Jewish before you can be saved. This teaching that you have to be circumcised is distorting the gospel. Is it close? Yeah. Are they talking about Jesus? Yes. They probably talked about his cross. Yes. They talked about sin without a doubt. They talked about the resurrection. Sure. But in adding an additional element to how people are to be saved, Jesus plus, in this case, circumcision, they've distorted the gospel message so much that Paul says, it's not even the same message. It's not the same thing. These are not minor modifications. There is no other gospel message. And the more you add to it, the further away from the original that you get. So we could summarize it this way. A distorted gospel message is not a gospel message at all. John Stott says you cannot modify or supplement the gospel without radically changing its character. That when you supplement it, you fundamentally change it. Why? Because it's no longer good news. What's the good news? You are not dependent on your obedience to be saved. You are not dependent on customs to be forgiven. You don't need a ritual to know God. And so if you lose that, then what does it become? Another version of the bad news, just with Jesus' name in it. You have to obey or you're not going to be saved. Every custom you got to get right, you're not going to be saved. You you see the difference? When you start to supplement it or modify it, you lose it. Why is this so important to Paul? If we back up in verse 6, use a phrase that I didn't explain. It says, you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. 
It's the heart of the good news is God's grace. The undeserved favor of God. That Jesus rescues freely at no cost. That you don't have to earn your relationship with God. It's the grace of Christ that saves us, that forgives us, that pulls us into a relationship with God. Nothing that we could earn. No work of any man. It's not by obedience to the law. That wouldn't be grace. It's not by the customs of Moses. That wouldn't be grace. It's not by being circumcised. That wouldn't be grace. It's not by identifying with the right group. That wouldn't be grace. That what we need the most from God is his grace. His loving kindness. That he initiated a relationship with us. Pursued us came for us before we ever even thought about obeying him. What we need is grace. This is important. If you don't grasp this in the New Testament, this grace is not just the means by which we're accepted, but this grace of God is the way that we are also transformed. This love of God that knows no bottom, this acceptance despite our backgrounds or who we are, is how we're changed. It's like, if you can imagine, a loving family. That we are loved by God the Father. And that love, that reminder of his love and grace to us over and over and over again starts to transform our hearts. How do our kids grow up being confident? It's not by lectures, right? You should be more confident. It's by knowing that they're accepted and loved. How do our kids grow up to be wise in their decision-making? It's pr probably not your really well-crafted parental one-liner. But it is being reminded over and over again, you're loved here. And that sort of grace transforms kids. And that sort of grace is what transforms us. So Jesus, Paul saying, plus circumcision or anything else, any other work is a false gospel. It nullifies grace. A modified gospel is a message parading as good news, as good for you, but it is not. It's not good news at all. It's returning to a requirement for your salvation that you and I already know we can't keep. It is oppressive and leads to despair. We can't bosozuko the gospel. We can't. Because its simplicity is its beauty, and the more we try to add to it, the more we actually lose what we need most which isn't what I have to offer, it is what God has freely given. Which is why then he writes in verse eight, if we preach this gospel to you, different one, if an angel shows up and preaches a different one, you just let that angel, you let me, you let whoever shows up with a different message be accursed. That's emphatic, strong language. 
Why is he so strong on this? Because the glory of Jesus is at stake. If Jesus rescues, who gets the glory? Jesus. Paul's not saying, hey man, I'm offended you didn't like my preaching. You really hurt my feelings. I'm never coming back there again. You didn't laugh at my jokes. And you don't even like, my, you messed up my message. It's only been a year. You already messed it up. I'm mad at you guys. I hope you're a curse. No, no, no. He's saying an alternate message robs from the very glory of who Jesus is, the goodness of Jesus. And so if anybody is against the goodness of Jesus, guess what they are? Accursed apart from Christ. And so emphatically, strongly, it's like nobody shows up with a different message because any other message takes away from Jesus. And then also, people's souls are at stake. If what we all need is grace, then a message that cuts against God's grace is leading us away from Jesus. So this is not original to me, but I think we could summarize this section this way. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus any addition, any modification, any list of rules, any customs, any rituals equals nothing. You just get the same old thing you had before. It's not good news. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That all you need is Jesus. All you need is this simple gospel message that Jesus saves through his death, burial, and resurrection. There's nothing else to add to it. But if you're anything like me, uh, I'm tempted to not believe that message. I'm tempted at times to think that it is my good deeds that puts me in good standing with God. I'm tempted at times to think that I need forgiveness and what I need to get it is to earn it. So what do I need? I need the prayer from verses three, four, and five. I need to pray. You need to pray. We need to pray it for each other. Grace to you and peace. From God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. It's according to the will of God the Father. And to him be the praise and glory forever and ever. I need it because I'm apt to forget it. For sure, there are theological concerns Part of the implications of this message is that we should reject some teachings. We should reject any theological position that has Jesus, faith in Christ, plus anything else. Anywhere that teaches, you have to believe in Jesus and be baptized to be saved. We reject it. You have to believe in Jesus, plus exhibit some sort of sign gift, or you're not really saved. We reject it. You have to believe in Jesus, plus you have to do these certain works. We reject it, for sure. It means what we believe at a head level, we're going to reject. This is going to hurt some of your feelings. 
Jesus plus any political identity. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying following Jesus doesn't carry weight in our political discourse and decisions. It absolutely does. But what party you vote for is not a test of faith. Jesus plus an R is nothing. Jesus plus a D is nothing. Cannot save you. Listen to a podcast with Sky Jathani this week. He explained this concept. He was talking to a guy after church preaching one Sunday, and he couldn't grasp this. So Sky says he finally asked him, what's more important to you as a father, that your children would grow up to follow Jesus or that your children would grow up to be Republicans? And the man responded, what's the difference? Gospel clarity is so important because there's a big difference. So there's some things that we reject, but I think for most of us here, that might not be the issue. I think it's a heart issue. That we could verbalize good theology, a summary of the gospel, but sometimes it just doesn't park in our hearts. That sometimes what we feel runs against this. That we are riddled with guilt and shame unable to forgive ourselves and unwilling to believe that God has forgiven us. For some of us, we just can't quite believe this good news. There has to be strings attached. We have to add something to it. We have to make up for our past. We have to fight through it. We have to feel guilty. We have to be burdened by shame. And that's not true. If that's you today, grace to you. God's unmerited favor, purchased by what Jesus did on the cross, not how guilty you feel. So at a heart level, receive it. Forgiveness for you. Some of us can't believe this because of pride at the very center of who we are. We refuse to believe that our salvation is not dependent on us. We have to have something to offer. We have to prove that we're better than our neighbor. We have to show that we're good Christians. If we stop doing that, what would make us awesome? All we have is comparison. And the harder we try, the more it leads us into despair and anger and competition. Friend, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to show why you deserve or earned anything anymore. Jesus already did it. And he rescues freely by his grace. So some of us believers need to hear that today. You can walk away from guilt and shame the need to prove yourself. Remind yourself of this prayer when I've received grace upon grace. And maybe for some of us today, we don't know Jesus. We've been around religion. We've heard some messages, but we've never trusted Jesus and Jesus alone to save us. And if that's you today, I would just invite you 
Come receive the very grace of God. Be saved, not by your good works, but by Jesus and Jesus alone. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.